Threats to Biblical Counseling, on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. This week on the podcast, we are going to deal with several different threats to biblical counseling. It's in the world that we live in, it's very common that we would endure threats of any kind, especially when we're trying to propagate truth. The Word of God really makes very clear that that we're going to struggle consistently with defending the truth. And so in biblical counseling, I think it's important that we assess periodically what some of those threats might look like. Now, of course, we're not doing this uh, as our distinct position where we, uh, we don't propagate positively what the Bible says about soul care. That's certainly our primary goal and duty. But I think it's incumbent upon us as well to make sure that we're consistently looking out for what Paul warns about in Colossians, that are vain philosophies and empty deceptions. This week, I want to devote a little bit of time considering some of those things, maybe in broad strokes. Uh, This is actually a breakout session that I was able to do at this year's annual conference, October 2019. And so I want to share that with you. I think it's important information for us to consider. The first thing that I think it's important for us to consider is when we think about secular psychology and its propagation and its continued growth and advancement, we have to be aware of the secularism that's promoted in secular psychology. When we think about some of the ideas and ideologies, um, Jay Adams made very clear early on uh, in the biblical counseling movement some of the dangers of humanistic leanings relative to psychology, the the Rogerian perspective, and I think that's important that we still uh, have an ear to the ground relative to uh, the humanism that influences us. But secularism here, I think, is is important as well, because uh, what we see transitioned really in the 1970s. It was a couple of decades processing, but in the 1970s, we see a distinct transition into what's known as biological psychiatry. With that transition, what we see are in the history of psychology, psychogenic assumptions, and that just basically means that there are distinct psychological problems, uh, or biogenic assumptions. And what that means is that there are distinctly biological problems. I I think what that does is it unnecessarily uh, divides man in a way that the Bible never divides man. It It forces man to have some sort of dualism in his nature if we understand it that way. So we have to be cautious when we think about those assumptions as being primary causes for problems that that people face, because when we deduce or reduce these issues that, that we're describing in secular psychology to something that's just driven by psychological issues or just driven by biological issues, we divorce man unnecessarily from spiritual remedy to aid and help when they're, when they're facing uh, very deep and dark issues, even those that are uh, physiologically driven. And so we have to be cautious and careful. And this redefines anthropology, the way that we understand man. And so in secularism, we see this consistent drift of how we understand man. And the biggest thing I think that we should defend against in all of these philosophies that we see coming from secular psychology and other avenues is to be very cautious about how we see man from a biblical perspective, that, that we don't find ourselves, even in biblical counseling, drifting in the wrong direction, drifting in a secular understanding of explaining man, because what will happen 
if we drift in that direction, is then we will be satisfied with earthly remedies to assuage the problems that we have. And then the Bible becomes unnecessary or uh, a side note or a footnote in the ways that we help people. And for us in biblical counseling, what we want to do, what we want to make sure of, is that we are looking scripturally at people to understand them in wholeness, in fullness. And how do we deal with these varied problems that we have in earthly terms? But then how do we deal with it looking forward to the beautiful redemption that is to be found in Christ, where he will redeem us body and soul in fullness? So we have to be cautious about secularism. The second thing, which is I've already talked about and mentioned, is humanism. Humanism is just simply uh, faith and hope in, in mankind, in our wisdom, in our abilities, in what we believe to be our own goodness. Uh, Rogers was, uh, Carl Rogers, that is, is most famous, I think, for uh, propagating in humanistic psychology that we become a person. And the way we become a person is just simply by uh, allowing our own goodness to shine through. We divorce ourselves from any authoritarian structures, and we begin to allow our ourselves to flourish as we trust more in ourselves and hope more in ourselves. And uh, humanism is definitely influential in the church today in so many different ways. When we talk about self-actualization or self-esteem, uh, this movement where we empower the self, the danger here is quite clear. And I think the church, in in so many ways, is is uh, beginning to understand the dangers of this. It's hindered our discipleship, certainly. Uh, it's forced us in many ways to appeal to the flesh of people as opposed to looking specifically at how we grow someone spiritually. But humanism is a direct affront to the gospel of Jesus, where very clearly in the scriptures, Jesus says, Luke nine twenty three, if any man wishes to follow me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So we see denial is part and parcel of the gospel. It's a necessary aspect of the gospel. Humanism is to allow self to flourish, put confidence in the flesh. Paul actually mentions in Philippians 3.3 that we are to put no confidence in the flesh, and this is what it means to walk as a Christian. This is a part of why Christianity seems like such a paradox in the world in which we live, because it is contrary to the ways that we think, but we see secular psychology promoting that all the time in many ways in in the bookstores that, that even Christian bookstores, we see self-help books that propagate humanism. We need to be very cautious because if we drift in the direction of humanism, our counseling will, will take the shape of utilizing the scriptures to empower the self. And that's a dangerous self-made religion of which Paul would tell us uh, it, it is powerless to overcome any indulgence of the flesh. And so if we can't accomplish uh, overcoming indulgences of the flesh by the power of the Spirit, then it's not really biblical counseling. So we have to be cautious about that threat. And then the third one, and this one is a bit more tender, I would say, we have to be cautious about here, and that is scientism. And scientism can really be described in, in this way, is we're not talking about exact science. We're talking about scientific language that's used to propagate a philosophy. Uh, an example of this would be something like the, the myth of the chemical cure where we've heard for years and years uh, in our culture, at least, that if you have depression or if you're diagnosed with depression, then you have some sort of chemical imbalance. And let me be cautious here and just say, if you're on medication, this is not a request that you come off medication. Uh, psychotropic medication is, is something that if you're on, you should stay on and consult your doctor. So I want to give that as a caveat. However, what we have believed because of the scientism propagated 
by pharmaceutical industries and also by uh, secular psychology and psychiatry, uh, we see that the idea of the myth of the chemical cure has endured as if when we experience depression, there is a direct correlation with something going on in our neurology. We have to be cautious about this because even the secular world has made statements very clear denying the idea of the chemical cure. Now, I'm talking about that in broad terms because the chemical imbalance theory has been propagated in two major fashions. Uh, One, relative to depression that often carries with it the idea of what's called the monoamine hypothesis. And that's just simply a way of describing uh, the serotonin theory of deficiency. So where serotonin is low, uh, it was propagated and theorized that uh, one would be depressed. And then the idea of dopamine, that when dopamine increased uh, in a person's brain, the the idea of that chemical imbalance, it would lead to to schizophrenic symptoms. And so when we talk about the chemical cure, uh, it's interesting because uh, secularists even, especially recently since the DSM-5, have been writing profusely in regard to this idea of the chemical cure. And Interestingly enough, most people don't realize that in 1984, I I think I was five years old in 1984, uh, which is amazing because I'm 40 now, and the National Institute of Mental Health made a very clear statement on this idea of the monoamine hypothesis or the serotonin theory related to depression. And this is the statement, elevations or decretments in the functioning of serotonergic, that's the serotonin system that we we have in our body, of the serotonergic systems per se, are not likely to be associated with depression. That's interesting because we could rattle off several more uh, comments about this. I'll let you hear a few. Stephen Stahl in Essential Psychopharmacology in 2000 said, there is no clear and convincing evidence that monoamine deficiency, which is talking about the idea of the chemical cure relative to uh, depression, the monoamine deficiency accounts for depression. That is, there is no real monoamine deficit. Now, these are guys who are not religious fanatics like me or maybe like some of you. These are guys who they've given their life to study psychology and psychiatry. Let me give you another. Stephen Hyman said, There is no compelling evidence that a lesion in the dopamine system is a primary cause of schizophrenia. Kenneth Kindler in Psychological Medicine in 2005 said, We have hunted for big, simple neurochemical explanations for psychiatric disorder and have not found them. Man, this is interesting information. Maybe the most shocking is by a man named Ronald Pies. Ronald Pies is Professor Emeritus at Tufts University in Boston, and he's been the editor for the Psychiatric Times for quite, quite a while. In July 11, 2011, and he's recently written articles that say the same thing, he says this, In truth, the chemical notion was always a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Well, I find that interesting because uh, in the common language today, this idea of the chemical imbalance still exists very prevalent. And so it's interesting that he would suggest something like that. Now, the reason I say that is not to condemn anyone who who feels like they've been diagnosed with some sort of chemical imbalance or that we still believe those types of theories. I think it's important for us in, in biblical counseling to make clear what we mean when we talk about these types of chemical theories. We have to be cautious. Number one is we, there, are, there are mysteries relative to the human being, uh, but there are also things that we have to be very aware of from the secular world that they're describing even their own theories are not meeting scientific quality uh, research. 
but yet the common language and what often we fear most in biblical counseling is that there's going to be some sort of biomarker found that describes some of these problems that we're experiencing. Can I encourage you that even if there are biological causes for some of the problems that people face, that's never divorced from a spiritual responsibility on how we respond to issues of life. And so the threat comes in where we, we succumb to and we shy away from uh, some of the ideas that the seculars may propound. It makes sense that they would try and explain human problems from that perspective because their philosophical disposition is that religion is not true, there is no higher being, and so we have to explain the problems of man within the natural world. So I think it's important that we back up from that. We hold firm to what the Bible says in its sufficiency about the problems of man and that we focus upon Christ as being the redemption of all of our problems, both body and soul. So we have to be cautious and careful as we move forward in the propagation of scientism, which is readily available. And there are tons of books. If you write in and have some questions, I can send you a bibliography of books that, from seculars that describe these types of problems and these types of issues. Maybe one more issue that I can see that's really important, and this is the issue of theological education. And you say, why theological education? Well, I think one of the threats to biblical counseling historically has been this idea of theological education. In our institutions of theology, those that teach and train pastors and church leaders, what we've seen since early on in the 1920s, 30s, 40s is when it became most prevalent, is we began to see pastoral care and counseling propagated through departments of the psychology of religion. And with that, the church became sort of a business, and the pastor would run the business as a professional, like a CEO. And with that, pastoral theology began to take that shape. And so we began to look in that professional direction, and he became the professional preacher, and he was managing the office and the, the business of the church. Instead of now, his shepherding duties take a back seat. And so what we begin to see happen is specializations in all these different areas of education and uh, counseling begin to pop up. And what we're seeing is that uh, in the 20s, 30s, really the 30s and 40s, uh, 1930s and 40s, we see uh, very distinctly psychology became the primary authority that began to teach and to train those who would educate and those who would counsel even in the church. And so you see the splitting of the way we teach and train pastors where we teach them, praise the Lord for this, we teach them about Greek and Hebrew. We teach them about studying the New Testament and the Old Testament. We teach them how to preach. We teach them a little bit about the function of the church. But we have failed in many ways in the last 90 years. We failed in so many ways to teach them true pastoral theology, where we teach them how to interact not just in our corporate preaching of the Word, but then in our personal ministry of the Word. And the story that I hear most often from guys who leave seminary education and go out into the ministry is what a deficit they feel in counseling ministry. And so the pressure that they feel because they're inadequate to, to minister to people who have these problems is there's still consistent deferral and referral. One of my goals that maybe you can pray with me is that we see in theological education, we see a movement once again, a revival, if you will, of pastors being taught how the church should care for the souls of people, how the church has been given the distinct responsibility 
led by the pastor, the, the shepherd, who's the under-shepherd of Jesus, to minister personally the Word of God to those who are hurting, to not buy into the secularism and the humanism and the scientism that comes from secular psychology, deferring people in their problems outside of the church, and then thereby maybe unintentionally ostracizing people who have these types of problems away from the church. That once again, we would see that we're training pastors to minister the Word in two fashions, corporately, preaching the Word with conviction, believing in its authority and sufficiency to deal with the problems of people, but then also privately, as a shepherd, diligently, day by day, ministering to word, the Word to those who are broken. And I think theological education plays a major role in that because where a, where a pastor chooses to go to school will often shape the way that he thinks, and it will shape the way that he then pastors when he moves out into churches. So I think this is a critical area at which we should pay attention and be very concerned. Now, there are other threats that I think we should consistently be aware of, which we don't have time to talk about today. But I think these four areas give us some specifics on how we should focus, how that should force us to cling to the Scriptures to make sure that we're not drifting in the way that we see anthropology and people. We're not drifting uh, to look towards something else, some other philosophy, as an authority over man. God has described who we are as beings. He created us, and in creating us, He's described who we are, what our needs are the most, and how we repair those things when they're broken. And so I think it's important that we once again return back to biblical counseling, standing firm on the beauty of the authority of God's Word and its sufficiency to deal with the problems that people face in everyday life. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. If you'd like to know more information about today's podcast or you have questions, or if you'd like to know more about ACBC and the resources that we offer, you can visit us at biblicalcounseling.com.